Hey everyone, this is a Faithfully Radical podcast where we're going to teach and equip families on the authority of God's Word. Let's get to it. Hey everyone, thanks for sitting back down with us on another episode of a Faithfully Radical podcast. Uh, I want to thank you all for being with us, for joining in, for uh, turning on this episode, however you found it. Um, thanks for joining us, whether you're a longtime listener, someone new popping in. I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope this is edifying for you. I hope uh, we're able to answer some of your questions in these episodes, and I, I'm just happy you're here. Uh, don't don't forget, if you like what you hear, you can go ahead and hit subscribe on, on any of uh, your apps, your podcasting apps, so that you don't miss an episode. Um, yeah, thanks for being down with us. My name, if you don't know, is Timothy Carey. I am your host here on a Faithfully Radical podcast, where our goal is to teach and equip families on the authority of God's Word. Um, yeah, thanks for being down with us, guys. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are going through a series on biblical suffering. Uh, we're going through a series right now called Suffering, and looking at the way that that's dealt with in the Bible. What? How did other believers in our history deal with this issue of suffering? What does God's Word have to say on this issue of suffering? And what does it mean for us as believers? What does it mean for us as Christians to to deal with suffering on this fallen creation, on this side of heaven, uh, in this fallen creation? What does it mean for us to to deal with suffering in, in a godly, uh, righteous way, in a way that honors and glorifies our Lord and Savior? And so that's what we're looking at. Um, I know this is a trying time for a lot of people. Uh, I I don't mean to bring a downer of a series in right now, <laughs> but it seemed like a very uh, apropos time to to talk about suffering. What does it look like? Why did why does God allow this? What what does it mean? Right? Like, um, how can we as believers suffer suffer in a way that still glorifies and brings honor to God, and in a way that uh, we can still honor and trust Him with our own lives? And so last week, or two weeks ago, last episode, when we sat down and started this series on suffering, I really just wanted to take a look uh, at setting this foundation kind of for suffering, of what what does biblical suffering mean, uh, what does it look like a little bit, uh, and just kind of laying this little little foundation before we dive on in. And so this week, we're going to pick it back up, and we're going to um, start to dig in a little bit more to biblical uh ideas of suffering, examples of suffering in Scripture, where we can kind of pick apart what is God doing? What is what is the believer doing? What is uh, What does this look like in an appropriate way that we can um, deal with suffering? And what does it mean with our relationship with God? So today we're going to start off with uh, a, a kind of mini-series within this series of suffering. And I want to sit down and take a deep look, uh, a, fair, a, fair, a fairly deep look, into the book of Job. Um, we're not going to spend a crazy amount of time going through Job, you know, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to exposit the whole book of Job over the course of like a year or anything like that. But we're going to take the next two or three episodes here and sit down and kind of pick apart Job. Um, and really take a look at what does suffering look like in this book? What 
when you start thinking about biblical suffering, or at least when I do, I'm not saying when you do, when I think about biblical suffering, one of the first things that comes to mind is the book of Job. Uh, this is a book where its whole purpose, its whole point from, from the very beginning to the very end is dealing with this issue of suffering with this one man named Job. And so instantly my mind always always first comes to the book of Job. Uh, It's a book that's fascinated me since I first started reading the Bible. It still fascinates me to this day, no matter how many times I've read through it. Uh, And so I just wanted to take a look and go through the book of Job and see what suffering looks like in this book. Pick apart what the pieces look like. What what can we understand about God in this? What can we understand about our earthly lives in this book? And what can we understand about us as believers when it comes to dealing with suffering? So for this first uh, episode, we're going to kind of look at laying another foundation. We've laid the foundation for suffering. Now I kind of want to put another layer on top of that. We're going to lay a small foundation for Job. We're going to set ourselves up to to really take a good deep look um, into aspects of this book and start to figure out what does this mean for us? How does this apply to our lives? And what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to look at Job's suffering and how does that apply to my life? So we're going to start off here, beginning the book of Job. Uh, the book of Job is a fantastic Old Testament book. Uh, it's, it's, um, its author is unknown, but due to, um, when we look at uh, circumstantial evidence from the book, it's more than likely set in what's known as the patriarchal period, uh, which would be essentially the latter part of Genesis. Uh, we think more than, most scholars think more than likely a contemporary of Abraham. He lived the same time as Abraham. So even though this book shows up much later in, in Old Testament literature, and it more than likely was written much, much later uh, than the story takes place, but we know that Job lived more than likely during the patriarchal period uh, as a contemporary of Abraham. There's a couple parts of that that we look at, uh, to kind of see when the time frame was. One of the major considerations uh, is that his wealth, Job's wealth, when we start to get into the book, uh, in the first couple verses, it describes what kind of man he is. And his wealth is described in terms of servants and livestock. So that kind of sets us up a little bit because we know that this was before um prosperity or wealth was designated by gold, silver, precious metals, and precious stones. So we know it was very early on that Job lived. Um, we also know by looking at other parts of Scripture that Job was a real person. Uh, there's a lot of people nowadays that want to take uh, books like Job, um, you know, like Esther, some of these other ones, but especially Job, uh, and want to make it uh, an allegory or um, a metaphorical story, uh, something like that. But Job, make no mistake, Job was a very real person. Uh, there's many reasons throughout the book of Job for us to believe this. There's many reasons throughout the rest of Scripture for us to believe this. Um, we can see in Ezekiel 14.14, 14, uh, it says, even these three, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would be, they would deliver, but their own lives by their righteousness declares the Lord our God. So we see Ezekiel, Ezekiel talking about Job right in there, along with uh, people we know lived like Noah and Daniel. We see later in James in the New Testament, he says, "Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen that the you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful." James 5, 11. Uh, so, you know, those are just a couple examples. We we know that Job 
Job is a real guy. The early church considered him a real guy. Um, the prophets considered him a real guy. Uh, there's no reason to believe that Job is not a real man, and there's no reason to believe this story did not take place exactly as described, divinely written, breathed out by God for us as one of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, the book of Job has a very interesting purpose. Uh, As we discuss suffering in this series and what it looks like biblically, Job becomes a very apparent book to really discuss these things and start to flesh them out. Um, For those that don't know, the book of Job deals with intense intense suffering. Uh, Job goes through many stages of grief, of pain, of mourning, of disdain for God. Um, he, he really runs the gambit here. He, he's put through the gambit. And that's why when we talk about suffering, this is one of the first books that really comes to mind. Um, we also get a very interesting aspect of this book is we get glimpses into heavenly conversations between God, his angels, and also Satan, the adversary. Um, So inherently, there's a lot to unpack in this book, and that's kind of what I'd like us to tackle now. Um, The format of the book, if you're not a Bible reader, um, you should be. (laughs) Just throwing that out there, please go out there, dig into your Bible, even if you're not a reader, even if you struggle, um, just keep keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. God will open up your heart. He will open up your eyes. He will reveal truth to you. Um, I highly encourage you, if you do not know uh, the, book of the, uh, the book of Job, if you do not know um, your Bible, please sit down and read that. That is the God-breathed word of, word of our Lord. And um, yeah, we just need to be very diligent about our Bible reading. But, but that's a sidetrack. I'll talk to you about that if you want. <laughs> But uh, so the format of this book is a is a pretty upfront one. Um, it doesn't have um, a ton a ton of differences going on through it. Uh, the book of Job is organized into a prologue where we kind of get a setup of Job. Um, we get a setup of God's conversation with Satan, and then. Um, it has a series of conversations between Job and his three friends uh, who are trying to consult him, trying to uh, turn him around during this time of suffering that's inflicted on him. And then it has an epilogue, a glorious resolution. There's some monologues towards the end uh, from another man named Elihu. And then there's the epilogue of God actually speaking to Job and kind of settling everything that's going on for good. The prologue and the epilogue discuss heavenly conversations. Uh, the, the prologue deals with setting up Job and God talking to his angels, Satan approaching him, um, and then it dives into Job's suffering. Satan is allowed to test Job, to test Job's resolve, to test Job's righteousness. Uh, and as then the meat of it is the, are these conversations between Job and his three friends. Um, and then it's, it's bookended with an epilogue where where God uh, speaks to Job. Um, And yeah, like I said, the meat of the book, uh, the majority of the chapters are of these conversations with Job and his three and three other men, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So what is the purpose of Job, and why is it a staple when dealing with the idea of a believer's suffering? There's so much, like I said earlier, there's so much to unpack in the book of Job, but the most glaring example um, is this idea of, of why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Or, or uh, to look at it in a different way, uh, why, why, why doesn't just good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? Uh, which is something... 
uh, a lot of people think, right? This this is a this is a type of idea that happens anyway in our world. We would know this idea right from a secular aspect as karma basically um you know good things happen to good people bad things happen to go people uh to bad people sorry and um in in theology in the study of of god and his word this would be something called retribution theology that when you're good good things happen to you when you're bad bad things happen to you uh and we really find in the book of job that this idea is turned on its head uh, the gospel transformation study bible puts it this way From a gospel point of view, both Job and his friends argue on the wrong basis. Job accuses God. His friends defend God. But all four of them are viewing God in action consequence terms. The gospel teaches a different version of God. God loves his own with a love that operates apart from and beyond questions of merit. So we see here already that um, we can really use the book of Job from its front end, to begin to point us to Christ. Uh, There's a lot to unpack in Job, and it deals with this idea of action and consequence terms of God. Like we said before, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But that's not true, and we're being shown this even then, uh, many hundreds of years before Christ is even born, that God loves his own with a love that operates apart from and beyond questions of merit. It doesn't mean that good people go to heaven and bad people inherently go to hell. We know that sin has entered the world. We know that we are all fallen. There is no one good, no, not one, as Romans tells us. Uh, So this can't be based on merit, because we've all been judged and judged, uh, and we've had judgment come upon us. we are not good, righteous people. We are inherently sinners. The only reason that we are reconciled back to a good and gracious God is because the payment of our sin was taken on by Jesus Christ on the cross. And this this, this operating system of forgiveness that God works through, we're seeing this in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ even comes. So, right, God loves his own with a love that operates apart from and beyond questions of merit. But but what does that really mean? How do we apply that, right? What does that mean for our lives? Is, is, is it just a free-for-all now? We're not judged on merit. Christ died for our sins, so we can basically go out, live any way we want to, and um, we're good, right? Or, or, or do we go back to retribution theology? Do we think, no, um, I have to become very legalistic. I, I have to uh, have everything buttoned up, be as disciplined as, as possible, um, and that's the way I'm getting into heaven. Really, none of these things are correct, right? Uh, the, the change that comes in to your heart after you accept Christ as your Lord, after Christ grips your heart as your Lord and Savior, I have to avoid that term, accept Christ. You don't accept Christ. I, I hear that so much. You don't accept Christ. Christ takes hold of your heart. You are chosen by God as a believer. And as that really happens, the fruit of, of, of knowing Christ is different actions. You're not judged based on those actions, but if you truly have a changed and repentant heart, your actions will change. So it's not a merit-based system. So what does it mean? Let's open up the text and look at the beginning of Job. We're going to start with Job 1, chapter 1. Firstly here, we're going to go through the first three verses. So let's take a look at these. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright and God-fearing and turning away from evil. 
And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Then his livestock came to be 7,000 sheep and goats and 3,000 camels and 500 pairs of oxen and 500 female donkeys. And he had many, very many slaves, and that man was greater than all the people of the East. So here's a couple things to unpack. As I said previously, this passage gives us insight into a time when Job lived. His personal wealth and prosperity are designated by his servants and livestock, which places him in a time before gold and silver became the standard of wealth. And we also see here that Job, what kind of man Job was and how he was seen by God. The latter half of verse 1 says that he was blameless and upright and God-fearing, turning away from evil. Here was a man who lived his life in a way that pleased God and fulfilled his responsibilities as a follower of God. He was not one to participate in things that could be considered evil. We see his concern for for living for God come out in the next passage, starting in verse 4 now. And his sons used to go and hold a feast at each other's house on his day. And they would send and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Then when the days of feast had run their course, Job would send and he would sanctify them. Thus he would arise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. Because Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. This is what Job used to do all the time. So we really begin to see Job in this context is fulfilling what's known as his priestly duties as the head of the family. Back in in these patriarchal times prior to Christ, we had a sacrifice system, right? So sin, sin's penalty is death. Uh, we now no longer are are it's 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 no longer necessary for us to have sacrifices now because. We live after the ultimate sacrifice, Christ. Christ came and died for all men. Prior to this, though, sacrifice was set up uh, as a way to atone for, for sin. God had certain rules and stipulations on what could be sacrificed to pay for your sin. Uh, and we see that coming directly out of uh, Genesis, where after Adam and Eve sinned, um, to cover their sin and their shame, God killed the first animal. Um, he sacrificed the first animal to make clothing for them. And that was the beginning of this sacrificial system that people would have to uh, sacrifice animals or burnt offerings or things like that for their personal sins. So he's fulfilling his priestly duties as the head of the family. He keeps up with Lord the Lord's ways. He does the things he is supposed to do in concern with the Lord. His concern for following the Lord's ways is so great that we see in verse 5, Then when the days of feast had run their course, Job would send and he would sanctify them. Then Thus he would arise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. Because Job thought, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. This is what Job used to do all the time. His concern was so great. His concern was so great that he would all of the time, all of the time, offer burnt offerings for each of his children in case they had sinned. We see that this is what Job used to do all of the time. So this really begins to give us a glimpse a glimpse into the kind of man Job Job is. Uh, we we begin to see we begin to see a man after God's own heart, a man that a man who we would admire and call godly, holy, and righteous. Um, and we see here in the beginning that 
things are really looking good for Job. He has wealth. Like we said, wealth in that time was designated by his livestock and his servants. Uh, He had a massive, massive uh, uh, operation of servants and and animals, and um, he has his health. He has a very large family. There seems to be um, no concern for his lineage. He lives his life in a way that avoids sin. He lives his life in a way that um, is only concerning for for the law of God, for God's love, uh, to live as a servant of God. But the thing about the book of Job is that things do not stay this way forever. Um, And in the next passage, we really begin to see a heavenly dialogue, a rare glimpse, really, into God conversing with his angels. And then Satan comes onto the scene. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the the great preacher, if you haven't read Spurgeon, I highly recommend going out there to get it. But he, he says it like this, Job's prosperity promised as much stability as anything can beneath the moon. The man had around him a large household of devoted and attached servants. He had accumulated wealth of a kind that does not suddenly uh, depreciate in value. He had oxen and asses and cattle. He did not have to go to markets and fairs and to trade his goods to procure food and clothing, for he carried on the processes of agriculture on a large scale around his own homestead and probably grew within his own territory everything his establishment required. His children were numerous enough to promise a long line of descendants. His prosperity needed nothing for its consolidation. It had come to its flood tide. Where was the cause that could make it ebb? But beyond the clouds, the spirit of evil stood face to face with the infinite spirit of all good, and an extraordinary conversation took place. That's where we're going to end for today, uh, after verse 6. So now we have it set up, right? Job, this godly, righteous, good man who has been blessed not only not only in 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 earthly material things, but in God's own eyes, he is a man who is God-fearing and righteous and upright. And we see that he's he's almost primed, right? Now we know what when we know what the meat of the book is, now we know that he's primed for a downfall. And that's really what this beginning part is doing. We're we're setting up we're setting up the 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 idea of Job, uh, the kind of man he is, how he has been blessed in in nearly every single aspect we could consider a blessing, and he's primed for a fall, and he's unaware of the conversation going on behind the scenes that we're going to look at in verse six when we come back together in a couple weeks. He has no idea that Satan is about to come onto the scene and that he is going to be allowed to suffer. And so we're going to pick it up at verse 6 next time. I thank you guys so much for sitting down with me. I hope you're enjoying this study. I I love Job. Um, I hope that this impacts you. Please follow along and and come back with us for next time as we pick up in verse 6 and we see what's going to happen to Job. Um, And we begin to really pick apart why God allows his suffering and what it means for us as modern-day believers. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Pray for us. We'll pray for you.